My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. came home one day years and years ago and had done, in his words, a really cool science experiment where his teacher had brought in thermometers and they had taken classroom temperatures of all of the classrooms along his hallway. And he told me that his classroom, I think it was 12 degrees. And I said, oh, I think you, you know, you might have things confused because I said, that's absolutely freezing cold. And he said, well, I know mom. He said, we've been wearing our winter coats and mittens in class for a few weeks now. That's the voice of Krista Wiley. She's today's guest on Talking Radical Radio. This show brings you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are involved in many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening can strengthen all of our efforts to change the world. Krista Wiley lives in Toronto. Back in 2014, both of her kids were attending public schools. And because they lived in an older part of the city, the buildings in which they went to school were older buildings. Some were approaching the century mark, and it showed. She and other parents would sometimes complain to each other about the state of disrepair in schools. They would go as individuals to the odd public meeting. They might write a letter once in a while. But it all seemed like an issue where there was not much to be done but shrug your shoulders, shake your head, and count down the years until your kids graduated. But at a certain point, Wiley and a handful of other parents decided that they needed to do something about it, and they co-founded the Fix Our Schools campaign. They did this out of a recognition that school disrepair is not just about peeling paint or aesthetics, but rather has a major impact on the everyday experiences, the learning and teaching, and even the health of students and education workers. Buildings that get unbearably hot in the warm months and cold in the winter, leaking roofs, washrooms in a dismal state, drinking water quality issues, asbestos, poor ventilation, all of these and more can be found in Ontario's schools. None of the parents who came together to form Fix Our Schools had much experience doing advocacy, but they learned fast. In their early years, they really focused on building a base through extensive in-person and online outreach. They also put a lot of energy into making sure they had good information to support their demands, as well as good narratives to explain them. When they started their work, school boards and the province largely kept numbers related to school disrepair fairly quiet. But the group, aided significantly by a well-timed study from the provincial auditor, played a role in making the issue a regular part of the public conversation. Fix Our Schools has intervened in elections in a number of different ways. In the 2018 provincial election, for example, they worked with several education unions to get candidates from all parties to sign a pledge related to addressing school disrepair, and helped make it a campaign issue. They've also invested a great deal of energy in advocating directly with politicians and staff. That felt useful during the Liberal government under Premier Kathleen Wynne, when those meetings extended to senior policy staff in the Premier's office. Which, Wiley hastens to point out, quote, is not meant to be a partisan plug for the Liberals, who, quote, had 15 years to do a whole lot more than they did, end quote. But it is in stark contrast with the active disinterest they felt from the Ford Conservatives. The biggest win on this issue took place in 2016, when the Liberals increased the amount spent on repair and renewal of schools from $150 million to $1.4 billion per year. 
As welcome as that boost was, however, the group warned at the time that the new amount was, based on widely accepted industry standards, still just barely enough to keep the problem from getting worse, and not enough to start undoing the harm done by decades of underfunding. From a $15 billion repair backlog in Ontario schools at the point when the group was first able to put together solid numbers, the amount has edged upwards to $16.8 billion today. In the current provincial election, all of the main opposition parties have made promises of various kinds related to fixing school infrastructure. But in the budget document released right before the election was called, it looks like the conservative plan moving forward amounts to a disguised cut to that annual funding. They promise $1.4 billion per year, but instead of spending it just on repair and renewal, it's earmarked to cover new school construction in the province as well. In this election, Fix Our Schools is advocating strategic voting to defeat the Conservatives, and has been working with other groups that have a similar analysis to make it happen. I speak with Wiley about the massive disrepair in Ontario schools, and about the work of the Fix Our Schools campaign. My name is Krista Wiley. I'm one of the co-founders of Fix Our Schools, which is a parent-led campaign that runs across Ontario. And I am the mother of two children, one in university first year and one in grade 10. I think I'm someone who's always been interested in community, whether that is back as far as when I was a student myself, getting involved in student government in grade seven and eight, and then again in high school and in university. So I've always cared about the community around me, and I've always really valued publicly funded education. For me, school, I always loved school. I got a lot out of it, not only academically, but socially, and had the opportunity to learn a lot of things that I wouldn't have otherwise, even in terms of extracurricular activities. So the public school in a community has always, I think, held a special place in my heart. How did Fix Our Schools emerge back in 2014? Fix Our Schools was actually a long time in coming. So I live in the West End of Toronto, and my children at the time were attending a publicly funded school, part of the TDSB, that was almost 100 years old at that time. And so prior to starting Fix Our Schools, there had been many a school council meeting, many a parent volunteer get-together for the school, where conversation had turned to just how poorly maintained our kids' public school was and that those in the neighborhoods around us seem to be in a similar state of disrepair. Whether that was paint peeling from windows, temperatures that were freezing cold in the winter and boiling hot in the summer, and we would often complain about it, really, and simply not know what to do. We would hear about budget cuts and how there just wasn't funding and there just wasn't enough money. It felt like there was no hope for a parent to get involved in a way that would make a difference. And so for many years, we complained about it. You know, we would go to the odd local meetings, so run by the TDSB, and sort of leave it at that. And honestly, oftentimes conversation would end up being something to the effect of, well, I guess there are only seven or eight more years that my child is here and, you know, nothing's really going to change anyways. So maybe we just focus on all of the great things that go on inside those buildings and just sort of grin and bear it and deal with the disrepair. That was leading up to 2014. And prior to us actually coming together and starting to brainstorm about a parent group that actually could make some impact on the state of schools, 
we locally had had the opportunity to have a presentation by a senior staff member at the TDSB who actually flipped things a little bit on their head and did a presentation about possible funding solutions that were out there and that could make a difference towards how public schools were funded and therefore how the state of schools could be markedly improved if some of these funding solutions were pursued. It was the first time as parents that we had heard something optimistic and solution-oriented about the concerns that we had about the state of our children's school buildings. And it was amazing what that little bit of hope and solution orientation did to this group of parents that started meeting around my dining room table and brainstorming about how we actually might be able to impact the situation. In the beginning, we were quite naive as a group. Nobody around that table back then had a whole lot of advocacy experience. We were naive insofar as we thought it was a very localized problem We thought it only impacted TDSB schools. And back just over eight years ago now, the TDSB was being sort of dragged through the mud a lot for a variety of things. And there was a narrative quite wisely created by the provincial government going back decades now that school boards were inefficient and they often wasted money. So it was easy to get lost in the actual dynamic of school funding and how it actually works. And it took us over a year to realize that, in fact, school disrepair was not something that only impacted TDSB schools. It was actually a big problem for every one of the 72 school boards in the province. So in the beginning, we were focused only on TDSB schools. And then by the time a year had passed and we were into 2015, we had elevated the campaign to be an Ontario-wide campaign because we realized that it did in fact impact all school boards across the province. And we realized that really it was the province and the funding provided by the provincial government that went towards fixing schools and repairing and renewing schools and building schools. And so it made sense that we would have to be an Ontario-wide campaign in order to be at the same level as where the power lies. And the power definitely lies at Queen's Park for this particular issue. Talk more about the problem. How does the disrepair of school buildings impact children and education workers? A few examples. One would be classroom temperatures. Very personal example my youngest, came home one day years and years ago and had done, in his words, a really cool science experiment where his teacher had brought in thermometers and they had taken classroom temperatures of all of the classrooms along his hallway. And he told me that his classroom was, and I might get the exact number incorrect, I think it was 12 degrees. It was something very cold. And I said, oh, I think you, you know, you might have things confused because I said, that's absolutely freezing cold. And he said, well, I know, mom. He said, we've been wearing our winter coats and mittens in class for a few weeks now. So classroom temperatures routinely in old buildings are chilly in the winter months. Or conversely, the classrooms across the hallway from him were always quite hot. Old HVAC systems are tricky to get consistent heating throughout a large building like a school. And then when you get into the shoulder seasons of spring and fall, these days with climate change, we often have very hot days in May, June, September, sometimes even in October. 
We're in a third floor of an old school building. The classroom temperature could be close to 40 degrees. The swing in temperatures that children, teachers, education workers would experience in many old schools would be off the charts. So that's one, classroom temperature. Two would be the state of the washrooms to the point where younger children and even older children will just not go to the washroom at school. They'll hold it. That's not a healthy way to live. And I know as a parent volunteer, when my kids were younger, I would use the teacher's washrooms and certainly the teacher and education worker and adult volunteer washroom was equally disgusting. And with all of the cuts that have happened over the last two plus decades, it's a capital repair issue that we're seeing, but it's also operational insofar as custodial budgets have been severely cut. And so it's not that caretakers aren't wanting to make sure that there is soap and hand towels in the washroom. It's that they simply don't have time in a day to make sure that they are in an appropriate state. So state of the washrooms would be another example. Roof leaks are a big problem across the province in, again, mostly older schools. We recently had an education worker send us a picture of their school with buckets lining the hall. And they had actually taken out the ceiling tiles and just were letting the water run freely through the ceiling, through the electrical, into these buckets. So many issues with that. I don't even know where to begin. From a very pragmatic perspective, the fact that in so many cases we're waiting until we're reacting to disrepair. So we're not proactively taking care of these buildings. We're reacting to things like roof leaks. So that's a very visible situation. The other two examples that I gave you are visible or very tangible. But then a lot of the disrepair actually is invisible. Things like drinking water quality. Things like asbestos, we know that most old schools will have asbestos in them. And we know that the asbestos has been mapped out, but you know that's a concern that needs to be addressed and certainly a financial burden that rears its head whenever even a small routine repair is done. If asbestos is an issue, that, that complicates things. And then more recently, ventilation, indoor air quality. During the COVID pandemic, We never expected ventilation in schools to be as important a topic as it has become. And so that's something that is invisible. But we know from many studies that indoor air quality has a positive impact on learning, on a child being able to focus and concentrate. Similarly, a positive impact on health of the adults and the students in the building. So that gives you sort of a smattering of ways in which what is now a $16.8 billion repair backlog across all Ontario schools impacts the people who spend their days in those school buildings. So when Fix Our Schools expanded from its early Toronto focus to the provincial focus that's marked most of its work, how did you connect with parents and education workers across Ontario? That's tricky. It always has been a challenge for us because the nucleus of the group continues to be in Toronto. But at that point, we started to embrace more social media, more e-blasts out to groups where the explicit ask of people is to share what Fix Our Schools is doing with their broader networks outside of Toronto. And simply by realizing that it was an Ontario-wide issue, it actually elevated how we operated with Queen's Park as well and how we interfaced with them. And we would also take opportunities to liaise with 
the provincial offices of the teachers unions and of CUPE that represents education workers, because working with them, knowing that they would have interests that would align very closely with our interests as parents was incredibly helpful. So we would take opportunities to speak to their members who were across the province as well. And that was another very effective way of getting our message out across the province. What are some of the ways that Fix Our Schools has taken action over the years? It's been a different set of activities depending on where we've been in the life cycle of the campaign and in terms of where we were in the election cycle. Why don't we start there with elections? Even though education is a provincial jurisdiction, we believed right from early on that school buildings really should be thought about as infrastructure and that infrastructure back in the first federal election that happened once we had established ourselves as a group, it was the first election that Trudeau became prime minister. And we had taken an opportunity during that election cycle to reach out to candidates from across the country to urge them to consider that schools were infrastructure and that if that were true and that federal money had previously funded things like hockey arenas and curling rinks, that surely there was no good reason why federal funding couldn't go towards school buildings. And really the turning point in that federal election was when the Liberals started talking about taking on debt in order to focus on infrastructure. For us, that was a really heartening observation. It seemed to us to be an indicator that the general public was starting to pay attention and to care about infrastructure. And then if you fast forward to the last provincial election, we developed a Fix Our Schools pledge in conjunction with several of the education unions. And we spearheaded the collection of signatures from as many candidates as we could that they would commit to developing and implementing a standard of good repair for schools in Ontario, and that they would commit to the funding that would allow school boards to actually be able to meet those standards. 58 of the newly elected MPPs back in 2018 made a commitment to ensure that schools are safe, healthy, well-maintained buildings that provide environments conducive to learning and working. Now, sadly, not much has changed under the Ford administration, but that was an effort that we feel was successful in, in many ways. It also educated the candidates on the issue of school disrepair and sent them to Queen's Park more prepared and more educated about that issue. We also do more mundane things like take every opportunity that the provincial government offers to provide input to their budget. So pre-budget consultations. And then in the early days, the overarching model for our campaign is that we spent the early days building our base of support in order to create a large enough base of support that the people with the power at Queen's Park actually were more likely to meet with us. There's a lot of in-person meetings locally in Toronto. I would go to TDSB schools, Toronto Catholic schools, any opportunity that I could have in the first year or two to get on an agenda of either a school council meeting or a ward meeting, I would take that opportunity and take a, a sign-in sheet. If there were parent events going on, we would try and get a table there and have a sign-up sheet. So it was very grassroots in terms of educating people about the issue of disrepair and also in terms of building our list, building our network. 
And then we would expand that through the use of social media. But in the early days, I think it was important that we took the time to be in person with parents, teachers who would come to those meetings and really educate them about why it was an important issue and how there were solutions out there. And then once we had our base built to a point where we felt like we were a large network across the province, we would try and land meetings with the education critics, with the education minister, with the premier's office, because we agreed as a campaign very early on that not only would we be nonpartisan and we would always try and be solution oriented, we also agreed that we would never want Ontario's schools to be fixed on the back of another important educational objective. So as an example, we would never want schools to get fixed by the Ministry of Education clawing money away from, say, special education or some other important educational objective. Our goal always was to work at a level of government, meaning the premier's office, where we could increase the pie that the Ministry of Education was actually dealing with. And so that necessitated relationships in the premier's office. This was when Kathleen Wynne was premier. We never met with the premier herself, but we did meet on a fairly regular basis with her senior policy people. It was very open, constructive dialogue. And we had those dialogues with the policy folks that we met up until 2018. And I think they were super helpful and were a huge part of why funding got increased to $1.4 billion per year. Another technique that we've used over the years is trying to create a narrative that is true and that is easily understood and that allows the people with the power to do the right thing. We started to shift the conversation that schools are infrastructure. I think that was an important first piece of creating a different way of looking at school disrepair and making it more interesting to the politicians in power. Another thing that we did is we used facts that we gleaned from research that we did in the early days. Local school boards were never encouraged to share that information, nor was disrepair ever made public. So we started to break down those barriers. And then we were confident enough in our numbers that we started pushing out the fact that there is $15 billion of disrepair in Ontario schools. And then we layered on another fact that industry standards would suggest that $1.4 billion was actually the number in terms of annual funding that always should have been allocated by the province to local school boards to just take care of that. We call it keep the ship afloat repairs and renewal. So we started talking about the $15 billion of disrepair that existed back in 2015 and how the reason that had been allowed to accumulate was actually because such a degree of scarcity in terms of funding had been delivered to local school boards for so long that they could never get ahead with repairs and renewal. And we ran into a stroke of good luck that around that time, the Auditor General was investigating the state of Ontario schools. And her report that year corroborated the number that we had been pushing out in a much more impactful way. That was hugely beneficial to our campaign. One thing that I would highlight since Ford got elected, it has been a much more challenging campaign to run. The way that they seem to interface with stakeholders is very different than our experience prior. 
the meetings that we would get, there wasn't the sense that they were listening or wanting to learn and adapt and change nearly as much as with the previous government. And that kind of dialogue just really ceased to occur. We have yet to establish any working relationship within the premier's office with Doug Ford as premier. And that's just in sharp contrast to the relationship that we had with the previous premier's office. Certainly, this is not meant to be a partisan plug for the liberals. You know, the liberals had 15 years to do a whole lot more than they did do. It's meant to just describe how we had success and how we've met with quite a lot more resistance with the PCs in power. How has provincial spending on school repair fluctuated since that big boost in 2016? It's been fairly constant, but what is worrisome to us is the most recent budget that was released very recently only committed $14 billion over 10 years for all capital investments in schools. So that would include not only repairs and renewal, but also building new schools. That leaves us with the $1.4 billion per year, but that's the bare minimum that's always been needed just for the keep the ship afloat repair and renewal. It's not going to allow us to get ahead and to climb out of the pit of disrepair. So even though the Ford government has maintained that $1.4 billion per year, we have seen the disrepair grow year over year to a point where it now sits at $16.8 billion. And then in the most recent budget, we have seen a commitment by the Ford government that is only $1.4 billion per year that is meant to cover not only repair and renewal, but also building new schools. Ontario is, of course, in the middle of a provincial election. What are different parties committing to with respect to school infrastructure, and what's your group doing to intervene in the election this time around? The quote-unquote platform that has been released so far by the PCs seems to be the budget, and we're not sure if anything further will be released. So if we use the budget as indicative of what their platform is, we are very much for a government that is not led by Doug Ford and certainly not a majority Doug Ford government because that budget, once again, seems to fail to prioritize schools and children and families and education workers. We feel like we were involved as stakeholders with both the NDP and the Liberals platform development. And we were quite pleased to see the commitments that both of those parties were making. And so to that end, our efforts this go around are really around educating and supporting the idea of strategic voting. I know some people bristle at that terminology, but we feel like there are many, many ridings that could swing away from a conservative winner to either an NDP or a liberal winner. So we have been working behind the scenes to support the candidates that we feel have the best chance of beating the conservative in their riding. And we've been forward-facing, educating our network about what a swing riding is, the potential value of strategic voting, of questioning every candidate that comes to your door. So trying to arm our network with thoughtful questions that are related to school conditions that they could ask to candidates So that's a very different approach than the one that we took in 2018. You have been listening to my interview with Krista Wiley of Fix Our Schools. To learn more about the campaign, go to fixourschools.ca. 
To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. 